Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the 17th week of our study on the life of the Apostle Paul, we will conclude Paul's third missionary journey in Jerusalem and see how God accomplishes his purposes through the sufferings of his people. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21 and join us as we learn to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. Last week, we heard from Gary Whedon, and he presented some great uh, information about Paul's life and the importance of finishing well. And I was so grateful to hear Gary share with us from Acts chapter 20, as Paul said goodbye to some church leaders that he um, was pretty sure he would never see again. This week, we are returning to Jerusalem. And so what we're finding this week is that in Acts 21, so turn your Bibles, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, we will find Paul conclude his third missionary journey. And yes, we will have a map and it will be very, actually very instrumental this week. You think that I'm, I'm puffing up these maps, but guys, they really do help us. And he will be concluding his third missionary journey and ending in the city of Jerusalem, which was essential to his his whole process of what God was calling him to do in advancing the kingdom, and ultimately um, allowing him to be one of Jesus' witnesses to the end of the earth, which is where the book of Acts began. Now Luke goes to great lengths uh, during this section to really promote the Apostle Paul as as a good contributor to God's kingdom work, because if you remember... At this time, Paul was a very controversial figure. In fact, some within the church were still suspicious that he was still uh, he was actually on the side of Jesus. They they probably still wondered, is he um, is he just infiltrating this church just to sort of blow things up from the inside? Outside of that, you had the Jews who still saw Paul as this great threat, and that comes into play in our passage today. So we will be looking at Acts 21 and the returning to Jerusalem is where we will focus. So if you look at this map, and I I tried to choose a simple map, you see uh, we have two red circles. The first is where we're starting in in the city of Miletus, and then where we will end is in that lower right portion in the city of Jerusalem. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave the map up here and actually kind of walk us through the text of Acts 21 and explain a few things as we go, and then we'll pull some principles away that I think God would want to share with us as we desire to live um, a godly life in Christ Jesus, and at times that comes with hardship for us as we are desiring to be faithful in sharing the gospel. So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 21 of the book of Acts. And when we, note that the we is there, this is Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is returning to the action. And he's going to be popping in and out over these last few chapters of Acts. So we see that first person plural is we, which includes Luke. We had uh, parted from them. These are the, the leaders of the church of Ephesus who had come out to meet Paul at Miletus. And it was a very, very painful, very tearful goodbye. And the word there, uh, parted, could be translated torn away. This was a very emotional, almost like, I I don't want to let go the hug, Paul, because I don't think I'll see you again this side of eternity. 
but they had parted from them, and they set sail, and we came by straight, by a straight course to coast, and the next day to Rhodes. I've, I've been to the island of Rhodes. Um, if you remember, maybe from your history, one of the seven ancients, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world was this huge colossus statue of the Greek god Apollo that at one point was in uh, sort of the harbor of Rhodes. He had one foot of the statue on one side of the entrance and one foot of the statue on the other side of the entrance. It was this huge, beautiful statue. But by the time Paul was there in the, in the New Testament, that statue had collapsed into the sea. But still, he was going to the island of Rhodes, which is kind of to the bottom of that top circle there. Um, and then he continues on. And, having fa- and, and then from there, they went to uh, Patara. Now, this is about 185 miles from Miletus to Patara. And they're traveling by ship. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we came in sight of Cyprus, which is another island, you can see that there sort of between those two circles is the island of Cyprus. Leaving, to, leaving it on the left, that is to the south, we sailed um, to Syria. So that means from where they were in Patara, there was another 400 miles by ocean that they traveled. This is a long way to go. It would have taken a long time. And if you'll remember, what Paul wanted to do, his whole goal in Acts 20, 16, was to get to Jerusalem by the great feast of Pentecost, if he could. So this was a little different than our travel these days, even by airplane. We know that we go to an an airport, we have a, a layover, and we make a connecting flight. When Paul was trying to travel by by ship, he would have to go with a ship that was going to be going the direction he he wanted to go, and he had to wait until that ship got loaded with all of its goods and its produce, and then sometimes they'd have to port, and they'd have to dock, and then they'd have to unload and reload. So it was was kind of like an extended layover in, in an airport that we might have today. But by extended, I don't mean four or five hours. I mean maybe four or five days. Now this trip from Miletus to Patara, took several days, then from Patara down to, uh, to Tyre, uh, which is where they eventually would go, that took four or five days. So there was probably a, a ship carrying grain or fruit that he would travel on. So this is like, this is crazy just thinking about how the Lord had to get this man from one point to the next. So we continue on in verse three, and we landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. How encouraging that Paul would seek out fellow Christians wherever he was to be with them, to encourage them, and to be encouraged by them. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So that is interesting that through the Spirit, something was being communicated through the Holy Spirit to these believers. And what they heard and what they wanted to disseminate to Paul was, please don't go to Jerusalem. Now that will leave us with a little bit of an interesting conundrum of, well, not really, but makes us ask the question, why would the Spirit communicate something? And then people would communicate to Paul, please don't go, even though Paul knew by the same Spirit that he had to go to Jerusalem. We'll get to that in just a moment. So when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and, with all the, uh, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. 
And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And they said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So thinking about this idea that the Holy Spirit communicated something to these believers, based off of what they heard, they said to Paul, please don't go, we, we have to wonder what was happening. It, my understanding as we, we look, and, and this will come up again, as, as more believers will tell Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem, is that everyone understood through the, what the Spirit was saying at the time, that Paul needed to go, he needed to go, and he needed to suffer, and possibly ultimately die, which is what would happen. It would take several years. But their care for Paul personally was getting in the way of their uh, understanding of what God wanted to do missionally. And they wanted to spare Paul from this suffering that he would eventually encounter. Now, Paul had a different perspective. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And we find this quotation from scholar Homer Kent in his book, Jerusalem to Rome, Whereas most people were concerned for Paul's welfare, he writes, Paul, however, regarded it not as a prohibition, but a divine forewarning so that he would be spiritually prepared for what would happen. So even though people were communicating, Paul, please don't go. Paul did not understand that the Spirit was saying, don't go. Paul understood that the Spirit rightly was saying, you will experience suffering. You may even die, but this is the path that I have for you. So Paul used it as an opportunity to become spiritually prepared for the difficult work that God was going to do in and through him. What a beautiful scene that they would conclude this time together through praying. I just imagine they're praying, they're kneeling on the beach. It's just a beautiful thing. And so he leaves them, and then he continues. And we pick up the action in verse 7. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, We arrived in Ptolemais. It's a little bit south, about 30 miles south of Tyre. And Tyre, by the way, way, is in Syria. It's north of of Israel today. We arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Again, Paul continuing to be in fellowship with those who know Christ. On the next day, verse 8, we departed and came to Caesarea, about another 40 miles south of Ptolemais. We departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. He should be familiar to us from earlier in the book of Acts. He was one of the seven Greek-speaking Jews who were selected to be some of the first deacons or the first deacons of the church in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And he was known as Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. That is one of those seven deacons that were chosen. And we stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We don't know what they said. We can surmise maybe that they said something similar to what the Spirit had been telling the other Christians. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, ultimately to suffer. And ultimately, that would lead to his death. Now we read in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now this is the same Agabus who was present in Acts chapter 11, and who predicted some, um, maybe t- over 10 years before, that there would be a great famine in the, in the area, in Jerusalem. And that great famine, it was actually why Paul was returning to Jerusalem, because he'd been taking up a collection for the Jerusalem church, because the Jerusalem church was experiencing a time of, of poverty because of the famine in the land, that this same Agabus, 
who proved himself to be an accurate prophet because what he predicted actually came to pass, this same Agabus predicted that the famine would impact the area. So, Agabus comes down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, this is interesting, and bound his own feet and hands. So Agabus has bound his own feet and hands with Paul's belt. This is very Old Testament-ish. If you look at some of the prophets, certainly Jeremiah, you see God doing some very visible um, word pictures to explain what he was going to do in the life of his people. And here we see Agabus acting very much like one of those great Old Testament prophets with this word picture of the belt. So we continue in verse 11, after he's bound his own hands and feet. And, he's, and thus says the Holy Spirit, again the Holy Spirit communicating, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? Paul knew what God had called him to do. He, he understood this would be spiritual preparation for the suffering and the difficulty that he was to endure. And in the word for breaking my heart is the idea of breaking something into many pieces, countless pieces. You're breaking my heart. And then here's the... The steely resolve, the Apostle Paul, to follow in the steps of Jesus. And we'll see that more clearly in just a moment. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready. It went up to Jerusalem. We said it before, even though they were north of Jerusalem, it went south. They were still going up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, sitting upon that great hill, Mount Zion, whenever you went to Jerusalem, whether you were coming from the east, west, north, south, you were going up to Jerusalem. And that was about a 65-mile um, distance from where they were. You could cover that on horseback in about two days. And I was going to make a joke, I'm going to make it anyway, that you didn't need any performance-enhancing drugs to make that horse go any faster on a two-day trip to Jerusalem. And if you don't know, there's some controversy about uh, the Kentucky Derby winner taking some, uh, some performance-enhancing drugs. I don't think they had those back then, but they might have gone by horseback over a period of two days and 65 miles. Verse 16, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. God providing through the, the body of Christ for Paul to stay, for Paul to encourage, for Paul to be encouraged. And then here we find this con section concluding. So this is really the end of Paul's third miss missionary journey really happens here as he's finally in Jerusalem. He covered over a period of several years, and this, this action right here is happening about A.D. 57, um, 2,700 miles from when he left, went out, and finally has now come back, and he is in Jerusalem once again, a place where he was educated, a place where he uh, studied under Gamaliel, a place where he served as a Pharisee, a place where he persecuted the church. And now, 
he is back. He was back before in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council, but he's back again, and there still is a high degree of uneasiness about Paul and what he is up to, and a high degree of suspicion. Now, I'm going to summarize the next section, verses 17 through 20, um, 26, then we'll pick the action back up in 27. So essentially what happens is Paul approaches James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he wants to present what he has brought so that the Jerusalem church might be financially supported. And they receive his gift gladly. Um, <clears throat> but James says, Paul, we have a bit of a problem here. <clears throat> you see, there still are some that are not sure that you're really on our side. There are some that are saying from the Jews who are opposing us that you are throwing away the law of Moses. So Paul, we need to come up with a plan that will allow you to most fully prove to both this Christian church, as well as these Jews, that you're not an enemy of either one. <clears throat> so Paul, here's the deal. We have these four uh, Christians, they're Jewish, and they are going to go through a purification ritual, and it's going to take several days. <clears throat> Paul, because you have been in Gentile territory, you know, according to Numbers 19.12, that when you've been in unclean lands, you're supposed to purify yourself in order to worship in the, at the tabernacle at the time, but then here at the temple. So Paul... We want you to take part in this purification ritual that will last seven days. And that will prove to the Jews that you, A, haven't thrown out the law of Moses, which they claim that you do. And it will prove to Christians that you are indeed willing to partner with us. And, uh, and this will hopefully help things to be a little bit peaceful. So we do see in the text that Paul indeed does join these men in this purification ritual. And that is because he had been... Um, he had been going through Gentile lands, and that was considered unclean to the Jews. So Paul wanted to show himself, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he wanted to become all things to all people in order that he might save some. So those who are not under the law to become like them, but to those who are under the law, i.e. the Jews, to become like them in faithfulness. And, and he does this. Um, but it still doesn't completely work from the standpoint of the Jews in their perspective. Um, so what, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the action again in verse 27. And before I do, a uh, verse that uh, I'm reminded of, knowing as Paul understood what he was to encounter from Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, which read, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And indeed, that prophecy that happened in Acts 20, before our, what we're reading here in, in Acts 21, would come to pass. So let's look at the temple in Jerusalem, because that is where Paul is taking part in this purification ritual, which was supposed to last seven days. So we read in verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, so we almost made it to the end of this seven day period, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. These Jews from Asia, maybe they were from Ephesus. Maybe they were from certainly areas where Paul had visited. If this was happening around the time of the Feast of Pentecost, which I think we have evidence that it was, then you would have had Jewish Jews that were coming from all parts of the region, all parts of the empire, to Jerusalem so that they might worship at the temple. 
And these Jews from Asia were probably there for that great feast. And they said, wait a minute, look down there. Isn't that Paul? That man who wants to completely throw out the law? What is he doing? This is a problem. And he's in the temple. This is a big problem. This should not be. We need to do something. And they, so they began to stir up the crowds. Who knows? Maybe they paid them. Maybe they just went around yelling, this man is, uh, you know, this man is apostate. He shouldn't be here. But what we see as we look at this, this temple layout, you can kind of see it here. It's, it's not the, the largest picture. But in the middle, you have the main temple. You have the holy place. And then you have the court just outside of that where the priest would go in. And then you have, the, on here it's called the court of the women, but this was where any Jew who was ritually pure and clean could go and enter. But then surrounding the whole temple structure, you had this area called the court of the Gentiles. And this was the only area where a non-Jew was allowed to be. Now we see a picture. It might not show up the best in this light, but this is a, re, a reconstruction of what the temple may have looked like. This huge central building. And then surrounding it, you had these other courts, a court where the priests could go, the court where the rest of the Jews could go, including women. And then this whole area called the court of the Gentiles, where only Gentiles could go. And keep in mind, there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court where other Jews could go. That wall becomes a significant metaphor for the work of Jesus Christ that we'll look at in just a few moments. So most likely... These Jews began stirring up the crowd, and they wanted, to, um, they wanted to somehow get Paul and obtain Paul and harm Paul. So in verse 28, after they laid hands on him, they were crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, this temple. A bit of an overstatement, don't you think? He's teaching everyone everywhere that this law, this temple, are to be profaned. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. Now, uh, that claim there is that Paul was somehow bringing non-Jews into the, that inner court of the Jews, apart uh, inside the court of the Gentiles. Verse 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they had suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they didn't actually see this Gentile in the, in the court of the Jews. They saw him with Paul in the city. They might have recognized him from Ephesus because maybe they were, they were from Ephesus. And now their, their assumption, whether it was because they actually saw it or they just wanted to believe it so badly, was that Paul had violated the temple and the law by bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews, which was a no-no and not allowed. In fact, there was a wall. Some, some scholars say it was about five feet, a five-foot barrier. Uh, others think that it might have been a taller wall. But there are plaques that are still uh, available today, one in Latin and one in Greek, that read, essentially, any Gentile that crosses over this line is responsible for his own death. And the Roman government, even though the Roman government was the only body that could execute somebody, they actually allowed the Jewish people to execute a Gentile who crossed that line into the court of the Gentiles. So this was a pretty big deal and a pretty big claim that these Jews were making against Paul. And it got the crowd worked up. Verse 30, And then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. 
They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, probably into the court of the Gentiles. And at once the gates were shut. And they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now this tribune, it was his, his official title was tribune. He was also a commander, sort of the local commander of the Roman army at the time. The word tribune is, uh, it's kiliarch, which comes from the word a thousand. So he was the commander of a thousand troops of the Roman army. And we find out in the next chapter that his name was Claudius Lysias. And he was the lo- he's kind of like the local sheriff. He kind of had the law enforcement at his disposal. And his main job was, Claudius Lysias, you keep these Jewish people in this temple area under control because Rome did not take well to civil unrest. So, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the, uh, the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, possibly with one soldier on one side and one on the other. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. He didn't even know what Paul had done. We find out later that he assumed Paul was an Egyptian um, insurrectionist who was leading a group of assassins to take out Rome. And Paul had to tell him later, no, no, that's not me. I'm not from Egypt. It was just a confusing time. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying away with him. Now this barracks, there's archaeological evidence of this barracks known as the Fortress of Antonia which was to the, uh, the north of the temple complex of Jerusalem. This was sort of like the headquarters in the hot seat. And this was where possibly Jesus was taken before his trial with Pilate. This is where Peter was probably imprisoned when he was imprisoned during his time in Rome. And Claudius Lysias brings him to this place. Um, it was, a, it was a, a huge impenetrable fortress where he brought him to question him more. Now, the quotation here shows us the importance of why Claudius Lysias brought his men and acted so quickly. From William Barclay, he writes, One thing Rome insisted on, civil order. A riot was an unforgivable sin for both the populace who staged it and the commander who allowed it. So he was determined not to allow this to happen. And he gets Paul, he finally... Gets the, the air is cleared as we read on. Paul says, essentially, I'm not an Egyptian insurrectionist leading the Sakari with their knives. There's a, a whole history there of uh, Jewish zealots who would carry small knives and assassinate people and, and stir up unrest or stir up the, the crowds. Paul finally says to him, no, I, you know, can I speak to the people? He speaks Aramaic. And finally they realize, no, this man is not who he thought he was. But it was confusing. It was crazy. But it was all part of Paul's journey through Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome, where he would die. And so what can we take? By the way, our last three weeks of our series together here will be Paul's journey to Rome, looking at finally getting to that final destination, which would take a few years. But for today, as we look at this, I was trying to imagine, Lord, 
what, what would you say to us today from your word that we can take away with? And that is that God accomplishes his purposes through the suffering of his people. We see that so clearly through Paul. And this is not a very American idea, but it is a thoroughly biblical idea that God does accomplish his purposes through the suffering of his people. Now, to prove this to you, and to think back to one of our key verses, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me, be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus Christ. I want us to look at Jesus' passion and Paul's suffering for just a moment and compare them. Because we find, as we look at Jesus' life, and as he was setting his sights on what God the Father would call him to do by suffering on a cross, dying for our sins, and ultimately, yes, to be raised. But it had to go through suffering. He had to, he had to suffer. Both Jesus and Paul were determined to go to Jerusalem. Both were accused of throwing away the law of Moses, weren't they? Isn't that why the Jewish leaders were so upset with Jesus and later with Paul? Is because they thought that they were rejecting the law, which they were not. Both were accused of profaning the temple, whether it was Jesus saying, this will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, talking, of course, about his body being put in the grave for three days before resurrection. And then for Paul to be accused of profaning the temple by bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews. Both had threefold predictions that they would suffer. Jesus himself telling it to his disciples and then other people sharing with Paul that he would suffer. For both, a plot by the Jews was to hand them over to the Gentiles. And that did happen. Both endured violent crowds, did they not? For Jesus, crucify him. For Paul, here, away with him. But yet, amazingly, both surrendered to God's will. For Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your, be, your will be done. And here, even in Acts 21, verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. So we see that God accomplishes His purposes through the suffering of His people. And we know very clearly from Scripture that Jesus suffered. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary, Jesus says to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Hebrews 2, 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus on the cross. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. This is what Jesus' suffering accomplished. Remember that wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews in the temple? So glad for our friends from uh, County Waste. Oh, oh, even better. GFL. They're green for life. For those online, we have the, uh, the trucks that are joining us for men's breakfast today. Um, but this is what Jesus' suffering accomplished. Again, thinking about that wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the, court of the inner court of the Jews. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So even that physical wall in the temple becomes a spiritual metaphor as Jesus 
would, uh, would effectively destroy that so that we might all be one in Christ. But it happened through His blood, through His suffering. But not only did Jesus suffer, Paul has suffered, as we have seen. And it was predicted in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, as the Lord speaking to uh, Ananias in Damascus. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul himself understood this in writing to his young um, disciple, Timothy, who was leading a church in 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7. Towards the end of his life, Paul writes, For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering. Another image from the Old Testament where uh, the priests would pour a drink offering upon the altar. Paul essentially is saying, My life is like a drink offering, like a sacrifice to the living God because of what I have suffered. And the time of my departure has come. And he's not just talking about leaving on vacation. He is talking about his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then finally, Philippians 1.21. Let's say it together. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul suffered. And then finally, we suffer. When we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we too will suffer. And we are told in the New Testament this should not be a surprise. First Peter, the whole book of First Peter is about Christians who are suffering for their faith in the first century. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Later in First Peter, a verse that has really just been ministered to me um, as, I've, as I've been um, with people who have explained some of their, their challenges and the difficulties they've experienced in life, and yet they've embraced this verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. And then finally, the benefits of the suffering and the, um, the persecution that we can experience come to us in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, which are very similar to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, parallel verses. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, not a very American idea but a thoroughly biblical one, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see that God's purposes are accomplished through the sufferings of His people. And oftentimes that purpose in our lives is the shaping of us to be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. So that suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. Oftentimes, God's purposes are accomplished through the suffering of His people. And yet, oftentimes, we want to avoid the difficulty because we want to avoid the suffering. At times, we avoid God's hard callings because of the cost that it will require of us. Aren't you grateful that Paul didn't avoid the cost so that he might further the gospel. Aren't you grateful that our Savior did not avoid the cost so that he could die for us? 
Ultimately, our, our trials and our suffering can, uh, in a sense, uh, break us. But in our weakness, God strengthens us. And I find that almost like a broken bone, which is stronger at the point of healing, our faith is more uh, resilient when we experience trial and suffering for Jesus Christ. And we're able to continue to serve Him more faithfully as a result of it. Because God accomplishes His purposes through the suffering of His people. I don't know what uh, the Lord is challenging you to encounter today. But before we ask our final questions, let us say our verses together one more time because they're so appropriate for the passage that we've gone through today. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The big idea we certainly have seen is that Paul modeled a life surrendered to and suffering for Jesus Christ, for us to follow. So our questions that you can spend, again, as long as you would like in your small groups. It's beautiful. The sun is now out. I can tell you that my legs are warm from that sun. So if you want to get warm, you move over that way. Feels good. Um, but the question is, how has God used suffering in your life in the past to accomplish His purposes? How has He shaped you? And then the second question is, what difficult calling is God preparing you for? Are you trying to avoid it so you will avoid having to suffer? Or another question could be, do you see someone who is experiencing some suffering and challenge that maybe you're trying to protect them from it, but maybe God wants to use that in their life to allow them to be sharpened and to be shaped and to be grown? Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you'll join us next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week and God bless.